Nicolas Bornos of Capital Inc., just to welcome you to, uh, to a panel that is another highlight of our forum today. Traditionally, the analyst panel uh, is always a highlight as we have uh, the members of our advisory committee and also analysts who follow the space for, for quite some time. And they've all been great supporters of, of uh, the forum. Uh, Bob, I'm delighted that you're moderating it. Thank you to Calamos and yourself for all your help and contribution. And I will, uh, our panelists do not need introduction, but nevertheless, I will leave um, the thunder uh, to you. Yeah, Nicholas. Thank, thank you very much, Nicholas. And again, uh, congratulations on 20 years of providing this closed-end fun uh, conference. It's a wonderful service, and uh, you, it's always high level, and um, it's continuing that way, and so a credit to you. Well, this is the analyst uh, roundtable, as Nicholas mentioned, and so I'm fortunate enough to be um, surrounding myself with uh, a number of skilled, seasoned professional analysts uh, that have covered the closed-end fund space for a number of years. So uh, I guarantee you, if there are any analyst-related questions that this group can't answer, then they're unanswerable. So, um, I, so I welcome them and I welcome you. I, I, I hope this will be insightful and, uh, and educational. Um, so starting uh, ladies first, we have uh, Mariana Bush, uh, CFA Research Director of Closed-End Funds and ETPs, Passive Products at Wells Fargo uh, Investment Institute. Uh, we have Michael Jabara, Managing Director and Head of ETF and Closed-End Fund Research at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. Uh, Alexander Rice, a Director at Stiefel. And Mike Taggart, CFA, CEO, CFA, CEO and Head of Closed-End Fund Insights at Taggart Fund Intelligence. And thank you folks for joining us today. So a um, number of topics to talk about, but again, this, this panel is from the perspective of an analyst. You've heard of uh, some different people uh, from the issuance, from advisors, uh, some attorneys, I understand, have been involved. This is clearly the analyst perspective, because I think that's very, very, uh, very helpful, because ultimately they're the ones that are uh, following the industry, writing the reports, and in many ways acting on behalf of, uh, of the investors in, in their assessments. So um, right now, we've talked about this, but it's true, and I think we sort of start to start from the top. We have what I would consider, and many would agree, a very healthy closed-end fund secondary market. And uh, we've had ro robust closed-end fund issuance. We've had uh, almost $13 billion of uh, unlevered assets raised year to date. We had about $18 billion last year, $30 billion. That's a, that's a lot of money. Good trading of the closed-end funds. We've seen uh, narrowing discounts, funds going to premiums. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of good things going on out there in the market with respect to their, uh, their assessment of the closed-end fund space. Mike Taggart, I'm going to start with you. What, what, what's going on here? Why is everything so good? Why are the investors you know, coming to closed-end funds both on the secondary and in the primary markets? You know, they're, they're, they're the best investment vehicle out there. No, the, um, you know, I think that really it goes back right now to yield um, and what they're getting for like on the distribution rate um, compared to what they can get anywhere else. I think, you know, it's kind of a virtuous circle, virtuous cycle. So you have a, a good secondary market, which is going into the, you know, supporting a good uh, primary market. You have the, everybody out there talking about, you know, the new funds that's in the market, um, marketing their funds, talking about closed-end funds, which then gets people interested in already existing funds, um, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to, 
you know, the benefits of leverage in a rising market and what you can get on yield in a closed end fund compared to what you can get in the similar, you know, asset class in a mutual fund or an ETF. Right. So it's been about income for a number of years now. And clearly there's a, a dearth of investment opportunities available to investors uh, to look for income. Um, so that's always going to be out there and it's still playing great capital markets performance. Uh, Alex, you know, we've had uh, IPOs that have come out recently, municipals, privates, asset allocation. We've had ESG. Um, you know, what are your thoughts? Is it, the, is it the structure of these products? Is it the, um, the, the type of uh, assets that they're investing in, all of the above? What, what are your thoughts from a researcher? Yeah, I would, I would kind of go with the all of the above. Um, a lot of things have been working. So first of all, last year you had, in 2020, you had a real benefit, and that was the price of leverage just collapsed, right? The Fed cut rates a whole bunch of times, and funds that have this borrow short, lend long structure that a lot of municipal funds, a lot of classic fixed income funds, all of a sudden had a real big boost in their earnings. And of course, those boosted earnings led to boosted dividends. And in a low yield environment, a chase for yield is a very predictable result, right? So that really set the stage. Last year, we had a really nice second half of the year. Performance was excellent. Um, like what you're saying, some of the structural considerations of the new IPOs. Um, this new structure is just head and shoulders better for investors than what it was 10 years ago. Uh, that has certainly helped. Um, you're also living in a very, very liquid environment, right? Uh, the Fed is pumped in tons of liquidity. Uh, generally, conditions are very easy. Credits has performed very well. Interest rates have stayed low. The stock market's had a nice run. Um, and closed-end funds, which tend to get penalized for their lack of liquidity in environments where liquidity is tight, um, suffer no such penalty today. And so they've traded very, very well. Uh, when you stop and look around at one-year performance numbers for virtually any class of funds that you look at, um, they've been stunning. And, you know, I think we all have been in this long enough to know that nothing succeeds like success and people will buy things that have performed very well. And they have. And as you pointed out, it's a combination of the capital markets and the inexpensive leverage. I mean, that's you know truly one of the, the, the best ways that closed-in funds can perform because it allows them to amplify their returns for their shareholders. Um, distribution rates, you know, obviously they many funds have raised their rates. That helps. Agreed? From your perspective, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I have talked to like, like everybody on this call, we, we've all spoken to thousands upon thousands of clients uh, over time. And just the vast majority of them, when you ask them why they bought a closed end fund, they'll tell you, I bought it for the yield. I, I bought it for the income. And so, you know, that has just worked so very, very well um, that people who have Gone, you know, when, when, when you had the Fed adopt, uh, in many ways, after 2008, start, you know, pushing QE and start really manipulating rates a lot lower, um, traditional fixed income investors had to start doing less traditional things to find that yield and make up for it. And one of the places they've come to is closed-end funds. And with comfort and with success, uh, people feel like they'll follow up on that and they will continue to do it. So I think, you know, I, I often joke with investors that, um, you know, the first time that we ever spoke is likely right after the bond desk told them that there was nothing they could do for them. And so if they come to closed-end funds and things do well, they're more likely to do it in the future and you, you continue to build. And one last thing before we move on is that, you know, obviously return of capital. Um, and you see more of this than I do. The other analysts do as well. 
um, I would imagine, question not statement, um, that many of the funds out there are absolutely earning their distributions. They're raising their distribution rates, but they're earning their distribution rates. So you're not seeing um, a large amount of these products out there that are returning capital. They're actually out of operationally earning their dis distributions. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. And, you know, uh, even when you look at funds that are reliant on the capital account, right? So for example, equity funds, where most of what you're going to get is going to be comprised of capital gains uh, over time, uh, you know, just, just look at the net asset values X their distributions. And if you notice that those charts are continuing to rise, um, you know, I had an old accounting professor that used to say the capital account is like the water level in the bathtub. When the level is rising, you know that what's come in through the spout is larger than what's left through the drain, even if you can't tease it all out. So look at your equity funds these days and overwhelmingly, even X distribution, their net asset values are still climbing. And that suggests that these distributions are for the most part being earned. And that's all good and uh, investors get it. And that's why you're seeing the demand both on the primary and the secondary market. So I think that that's very, very helpful. So um, switching gears a little bit, um, there's been, we've seen rates start to rise here, not so much at the short-term level, the Fed's kind of holding tight for now. But we have seen the 10-year move up. Uh, we've seen inflation pressure, uh, a lot of cash in the system, as you well pointed out. Um, rising rates uh, is a concern with the closed-end fund investor, and certainly it applies uh, to with respect to leverage. Uh, now, we've had discussions earlier on, the, on a panel that talked about leverage specifically, but um, I, I want to, again, address this from the research perspective. And, and Mariana, there have been some from structuring concerns uh, about new closed-end funds employing leverage at this point in the cycle. And leverage has always been a great uh, tool for the, for the closed-end fund uh, manager. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Is it something we should be concerned about now or, or is it something that, you know, it's, it's inherently a benefit and we, we just let it go as it is? Um. Uh, the what is important to to remember is it's the differential that is key. It's the differential between what the funds can invest in and what the cost of borrowing is. Um, maybe more important than than which rates are are rising. Uh, so that is key. And if you look uh, back. Um, historically, with very, very few exceptions, and I'm talking about exceptions that are just a few days long, um, that differential has been beneficial to leveraged closed-end funds, which is why uh, in the long run, uh, the returns have been um, substantial and very uh, interesting, of course, in the very short term, as we all know, um, it can be quite hurtful which is why closed-end funds are not necessarily for every single investor, especially those that cannot stomach um, sub, um, some uh, volatility in the short term. But if somebody is long-term and they understand the risks, um, leverage has typically been um, very positive for closed-end funds, especially for closed-end funds that invest in asset classes that are not as volatile. Um, for those asset classes that may be much more volatile, um, what we have seen, uh, and MLPs is an example like that, and not once, but at least twice, um, that they did have to delever uh, quite substantially. 
Um, that was also the case in the past year for MLP funds, uh, but they're starting to re-leverage again. Um, I think it is wise of them to maintain a more prudent, lower leverage ratio instead of maximizing it all the way to where they could technically. Um, so leverage is a double-edged sort um, that in the long run does tend to work very well for closed-end funds, but it could be a, a bit painful in the short term. What I've seen is issue, the new issuers that come out, what, what, what the, the tendency now seems to be, because I guess they're getting some you know, feedback from, the, from the, um, the sales management or perhaps the research community, is that initially we will not use leverage, although down the road we may employ up to 25, 30, 35% leverage. That seems to be a way that you're kind of you know, showing caution now where you may be in an inflationary environment but reserving the right down the road when perhaps the dynamics are more favorable. I think then they have to market great. time, right? I'm sorry, Mariana, go ahead. It's your question. I think it's always great to give yourself plenty of options, plenty of uh, tools that you can use in the future. So that right. Makes sense. right. Mike, did you want to weigh in? I think Mariana had a fair point. I, I think my concern there is, you know, is the fund going to use leverage or not? And if it's reserving the right to and just saying now is not a good time, then that suggests, you know, who's going to make the decision when it is the right time? Is that market timing, that sort of thing? I mean, you know, depending on your risk, an investor's risk level and time horizon, you know, if you're not willing to invest in a leveraged asset class, then, you know, why are you in that asset class um, to begin with, if your risk profile and your time horizon suggests that you should be? I mean, I completely agree with what Mariana said about volatile asset classes like MLPs, and that sort of thing. But for the most part, leverage works, except, you know, very short time periods um, in terms of days. It hasn't in the last, you know, 15 years. So, right. Right. you know, I, I would set to add to that. I mean, I, I would guess in a lot of instances, folks or, or portfolio managers are looking at things on an opportunistic basis, right? They, they can't put that money to work in, in assets that arguably make sense at current valuations. I'm guessing sort of that's the, 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 that's what's holding them back to some extent. Right, that's fair. It's a very fair point. I, I think one interesting um, observation would be often investors buy a close-end fund knowing that it's leveraged or knowing or that it's not leveraged and they say, I don't want leverage or yes, I can tolerate leverage. Um, it, it has been um, the case historically that close-end funds, if they're not leveraged, they stay not leveraged. If they're leveraged, they typically they leveraged. Um, kind of this back and forth um, opportunistically. I I'm not saying it's, it's a bad idea, but I, I wonder if it will surprise the investor at one point that point. they feel they, they bought something intentionally that was not leveraged, for example, and then they find out a few years down the road, oh, wait a minute, um, my fund is leveraged now? I was not aware of that. Um, so I just wonder um, how, how that may work out. That's a good point because it wasn't sold as that, although the intention and by the perspectives it may, that's not what they understood at the onset. So yeah, that's a, it's kind of a sticky wicket. Uh, we, we shall see. So um, moving on, um, again, rising rates, as we all know, well know, that's a concern of closed-end fund investors, uh, particularly bond investors. Uh, those are funds that are leveraging. Um, a lot of times we'll see rising interest rates um, as a sign as the beginning of a market sell-off. 
And like I said, the secondary market's been strong here to four. We saw um, the general market sell off in the, during September, uh, first couple of days of October, down about 5%, roughly, the S&P, the MSCI. And some of the discounts have seemed to widen a little bit. Some of the premiums have come down a little bit. Um, Mike Jabara, your thoughts. Is this, uh, is this something we should be concerned about as we go into year end? Uh, or is this going to just go away? Yeah, I mean, it's a, listen, it's a fair question. I think whenever you're investing in closed-end funds, given that most are income-oriented, you have to be cognizant of interest rates and sort of your expectations on both the long and the short end. Obviously, on the long end, on long-term interest rates, and on the short end, um, you know, as it, as it pertains to, to, to leverage. So, you know, I think we, we, we certainly need to be aware and have some type of prediction about what our expectations are. Uh, you know, for interest rates, if obviously you get any type of jolt, and a lot of times it depends on the speed that rates move, right? So as an example, if rates on the long end jump and they jump very quickly, um, that often rattles closed-end fund investors, given that most of the, you know, most closed-end fund holders are still, uh, you know, your retail type investors. And, you know, certainly under that type of environment, you know, you will likely see uh, discount widening or, or premiums even shrink. I think one of the narratives out there, which I don't necessarily uh, agree with, is that, you know, the closed-end fund market has uh, fundamentally changed, right? There are more in, there's more institutional participation, and uh, because the IPO structure is more shareholder-friendly, you know, arguably when uh, you know, what hits the fan, that the market's going to hold in there better maybe than it has in the past. You know, and I'm not necessarily sure that's the case. I think in a, you know, in a risk-off type volatile market, um, you know, that arguably happens really quickly, um, you know, we will inevitably see that discount widening just like we've seen countless other times in, in history. And, you know, my view is that the market has not fundamentally changed despite the fact that you certainly have different participation maybe uh, than we've seen in the past, but nonetheless, it still is retail dominated. There still is a lack of liquidity. And obviously, uh, you know, the volatility does really ramp up in risk off type environments. That's a great point, Michael. That's a really great, in my opinion. And I think that, you know, how many times have we all, you know, when the market's doing well and valuations are tight and premiums are abundant, you know, oh, it's different this time. <laughs> you know, how many times have we heard that? It's it's, it's boring, you know, <laughs> so to, to hear that again, right? It's like, oh, how can you believe that still? It's not different. One observation that I would like to add with, to my, what Michael said is on liquidity. I, I, I would say that liquidity has improved a bit for two reasons. Um, because there have been a number of mergers creating larger okay more liquid funds, so that's on the secondary. And on the primary, um, the size of the IPOs has been increasing uh, in the past few years. So I think that's also a good thing. Having said that, <laughs> there's still a few funds out there that are relatively smaller and less liquid. And just the other day, we were looking at a fund and uh, the premium just spiked. Uh, and we were trying to f understand so why did the discount turn into a and into a premium and did it spike? Um, no dividend change, no announcement, no nothing. Um, it, we suspect it was just volume. Somebody probably not knowing exactly what they were doing, maybe not understanding the liquidity and some best practices on trading close-end funds, and that really moved 
um, the price. So generally, liquidity, I would say, has improved. But every once in a while, there are these moments that <laughs> I wish people would better understand best trading practices. Yeah, I would like to chime in also one thing. Um, once I, I, I just as, as an old tale of being a junior analyst at one point, I raised my hand in a meeting and I asked a portfolio manager who happened to manage a senior loan portfolio, the relatively admittedly boilerplate question about liquidity in loans and what will you do if there's a problem with liquidity? And this portfolio manager looked at me and he said, Alex, are you asking me what happens when everyone gets scared at the same time that you do? And that's very much what liquidity is like. It's there when it's there. And when it's not there, it is really cold really quickly. Um, the majority of us spend our day talking about fixed income, uh, but our bosses are the head of equity research. You know, these things trade like stocks, they trade on the New York Stock Exchange, and when the temperature changes, it can be very quick. That's true. And we saw that at the onset of COVID. I mean, the liquidity in some of these funds was really very, the trade, it was difficult to trade them. Uh, obviously that abated, but um, you're right. The float on some of these isn't, isn't, that, isn't that great. Before we move on, I just want to, there's a general question I'm going to throw out to the group. When you get in an environment like we may get into where you're seeing rates rise and you're seeing uh, fears of inflation, are, ass, are certain asset classes, perhaps longer duration bond funds, are they sometimes disproportionately, are their prices disproportionately hit relative to other funds or does the market generally get it, get it right? Anybody? In the short run, anything can happen, and we've all been sitting in front of our screens, sometimes, you know, agog at how much the market can really punish uh, a certain set of funds um, if a given risk shows itself. Um, those are more short-term considerations or medium-term considerations. Uh, over, the, over the long haul, the NAV returns really do assert themselves. Um, you know, but beware, that volatility can be really surprising. It can be two to three times what most investors are used to when talking about a certain asset class. So if you're talking about rising rates and long duration, um, the first asset class that I think of in closed end is munis. And, you know, you look at the really the bad years like 1994 or 1999, uh, where you had fund share prices moving, you know, in some cases, two to two and a half times what the indexes were doing. So over the short run, it can be brutal, but over the long run, um, in that kind of a vehicle, you really do own unis and that's what your ride is going to feel like. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the other point too is, listen, not every closed-end fund is going to decline in a, in a rising interest rate environment, right? There are plenty of equity closed-end funds or other vehicles that may hold up relatively better in a, in, in a rising rate environment. So, um, you know, while most are income-oriented and have some type of rate risk, um, it's all relative. The other thing to keep in mind, and this is a, the complicating, the fun part maybe of closed-end funds for us, um, is we, one may be correct in what to expect for an NAV, meaning this asset class, this is how it should perform, therefore the NAV does that. That does not necessarily mean that the market price of that closed-end fund will follow exactly. It may, but sometimes it may be complacent and not much happens to the market price, it may go up too much, it may go down too much. And, and that's where kind of that extra layer that we have to add, it's not just worrying or being aware of the NAV, it's kind of that extra layer of the premium discount um, from the market price doing 
sometimes in moving it in line with the NAV, but sometimes not at all. Well, and that's why the research community's job is so important, because as we know, as we know in the categorization of closed-end funds, even though you may have a group of funds that are categorized under one uh, label, oftentimes when you lift the hood and you look at these products, they could be very, very different. And you could have one fund that has a lot longer duration bonds in it, and another one that has more senior loans, shorter duration, which will arguably do well in a rising interest rate environment, but sometimes they both get tarred with the same brush. And to your point, the market price reacts in sync when the NAV isn't likely to perform in the same at all. So that's the role of your analyst is really to inform the public. And I'm sure you do that all the time. Well, one of my favorite charts when I first started looking at closed-end funds 10 years ago was a report that Mariana, you did or your team did uh, with the correlation of just general closed-end fund prices with VIX you know, with volatility. It's fascinating because you talk about, you know, lumping all closed-end funds together. I mean, it's ridiculous and that you could do the same study today and it would show the same thing. Um, you know, when you get a sudden spike in vol, um, everything, you know, prices disconnect from NAVs. It's like, just sell. Like, I don't care. It's a closed-end fund. I got to get out of it. Um, whereas, you know, the more thoughtful, opportunistic, longer-term folks and, you know, institutions, that sort of thing, that they're the ones standing at the door buying the shares at <laughs> deeply discounted prices. So, Actually, I would argue Everybody's that financial gone. advisors as well, the, the more time that they have <laughs> known close-end funds, the, obviously the wiser they become. Right. And instead of panicking and telling with everybody else, they're the ones calling saying, okay, so what should I buy now? <laughs> so right. um, things have changed over time too. Yeah, and I mean, I, you know, the, the other thing I would say too is, listen, it still is an inefficient market, right? Mm -hmm. uh, despite, you know, despite some of the efficiencies and maybe they've improved a little bit over time, but it still is very inefficient, um, you know, and, and arguably a, 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 a market that you certainly, you know, it, it's all about timing. And if you can pick your entry points well, um, you know, there's certainly are plenty of opportunities. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's why the experienced advisors buy when the market's going down because they know that, um, you know, it's going to go back up eventually. And that's why they should listen to the research community out there to, to uh, advise the advisors when those uh, when those opportunities present themselves. So um, another subject that, that I'd like to talk to you about um, is a little bit about, obviously, you know, what we all try to do is encourage um ways for companies or advisors to support their closed-end funds in the secondary market. Um, and this is, um, you know, something that we hadn't discussed in the rehearsal, so I'm kind of throwing it to you, Cole, but I, I thought it'd be an interesting question because I think there's a lot of people out there that would sort of like some guidance from, from you folks as to, you know, what an advisor can do to best uh, support their products in the secondary market and perhaps working with the research community in that. So that's sort of a jump ball softball. So please, uh, Somebody grab it. <laughs> well, I, I'll start off and I'll do my best Mariana Bush impression by saying data, data, and data, preferably in Excel. Um, you know, the more transparent managers are, uh, the more they, they, they give information about their funds, the more comfortable somebody in our position can feel saying, yes, I really do know what's going on in this fund. And I know that we have some calamity happening in the markets today, yesterday, or whatever, and the baby is out with the bathwater. Um, but because I have very good data from certain issuers, I feel very comfortable, even in the face of, of what can be 
vicious price moves saying, no, this is a safe fund. This is a fund that doesn't have an internal problem beyond what's happening in the wider markets. And you feel comfortable putting people in. So yeah, data. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Education, education for sure. And uh, I would say, just make sure that the fact sheets are very clear, very easy to understand. Um, sometimes, uh, for example, leverage. Some fact sheets are very clear as to these are the net assets, these are the, this is the leverage, therefore this is the total asset, and therefore this is the leverage ratio. But sometimes still some fact sheets just talk about net assets, preferred, uh, and that's it. And don't really say much more, don't even do the ratio calculation. So we may understand that, who, who, those of us who are on this panel, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody, every single investor who's going to be looking at that fact sheet will understand, oh, I get it, that's leverage. And I know the ratio to figure out what the leverage ratio is, and I know what the typical leverage ratio is. So um, making it very clear um, for dummies, fact, fact sheets for dummies, hey, uh, why not? Um, so that I think is very important. And the other thing that I would add to, to Alex's comment um, is stay in touch. Um, and I'm sure all the sponsors know that we will reach out if we have questions, um, but just stay in touch, especially when there's something that is not going well, uh, or maybe after a substantial dividend cut, we know that they cannot reach out to us before, but after for sure, um, just so that we um, understand um, what happened, what changed. Um, so that's just stay in touch and some managers do, do a great job with that. Yeah, I mean, I would add to that, like the transparency and the easy to understand information on websites, I, it's definitely not what it should be, um, even after you know, a number of years and sort of, I think the analyst community telling you know, issuers what they want. I, you know, I still look at websites and fact sheets and fact sheets are outdated. And um, you know, some of the information that's on websites is not that easy to understand, especially for you know, uh, retail investors. So, mm -hmm. Um, you know, easy to understand, transparent, updated data is key, and, and we're, it's not there. Right, and it's the narrative, right? I mean, all this goes back to the narrative. What do they want people to know about their funds? And, you know, if they're not creating the narrative, then advisors and investors aren't going to spend the time to dig through, you know, nine-month-old data or three-month-old, four-month-old data and kind of come up with an idea when they can just go, hey, well, I don't know anything about that fund. They're not telling me. Here's a fund that's very similar. And, oh, look, everything's here for me, right? Which fund are you going to invest in? Um, it's Some of it's just kind of like marketing 101, if you think about it. And a lot of these fact sheets, they may as well just be for a mutual fund. And they just slap the, slap the closed-end fund into the mutual fund template. It's, I don't know, frankly, I, a lot of times I find certain fund families a little ridiculous. You wonder why they're not trading at even wider discounts than they are. So. It is important because as we know, well, well know, I mean, the analyst community is excellent. It's out there. I wish there were more of you, candidly. Um, the ones that are out there are excellent and they're dedicated. You've been there for years, but you, you know, you can't, uh, you can't have too much, you know, analysts covering an area, which I think, you know, candidly, as we all know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult space to sort of cover because many of these funds are very different. They may be sort of tagged as convertible or high yield products, but inside, you know, when you lift up the hood, they can operate very, very differently and act differently. And so you're right. It's the message to the, to the, the advisors out there is communication, whether it be through your websites, the analyst program, 
uh, webinars, whatever it is, just get, get the word out there because um, it is critical, no question about it. Okay, um, so as we come into 2020, we've got about five minutes left, uh, 2021. Uh, 2020 was an interesting year with COVID, marketing, selling and all that. Uh, we seem to be getting into more of a hybrid situation. I know each state and each company is a little bit different, but we're starting to get a little life uh, as I sit here in, in Midtown Manhattan. Um, each one of you, if you could just give me some thoughts on, you know, what were your takeaways for at least year to date on 2021 in the closed end fund space? And what do you think that's going to, how, that, how is that going to translate into 2022 if you can look into your crystal ball? Mike Jabbar, I'll start with you if you don't mind. Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, obviously the space is traded well. It's, it's not trading cheaply, right? You could argue the, the closed end space as a whole is, is expensive, you know, is trading expensively. You have investors uh, reaching uh, for yield. Um, but I guess I could, some of those comments I could make about almost every asset, right, or, or, or asset class, right? And closed end funds, quite frankly, are no different. You know, I think it from this stage forward, um, you know, we're a little held hostage by the backdrop and the market in general. If, you know, we continue to have a decent backdrop and, um, you know, and, and, and volatility remains somewhat dampened, I think closed-end funds, you know, will, will continue to chug along. Um, you know, we, we, we might get a little bit of tax loss selling, but I don't think much. I mean, just because everything is really done so well, although there probably are some pockets of opportunity still where funds are maybe off of their multi-year highs. But <clears throat> for the most part, you know, quite frankly, the space is in pretty good shape. Um, you know, so I think it's, um, you know, if, if, if I were a, a closed-end fund investor, I think you're better, be, uh, you, you're better off being a a seller right now than a buyer, right? And 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 waiting for some type of pullback, arguably to deploy to to, to deploy money. So that would be the you know the, the the one thing I would say. You don't think there'll be tax loss selling? I know I think you know that's a tough prediction, but um, no. I mean we've had some good years. Twenty twenty was great. Twenty twenty one looks good. I mean a lot of times if you come into year in with volatility, you know you're starting to the the, the recipe's there. Um, but you think we're going to hold tight, huh? It depends on what the, the, the underlying market does, right? If we sort of hold in there, then I think, you know, closed-end funds will sort of, you know, uh, play along. But uh, quite frankly, if vol does pick up and we go risk off, then it, you certainly will see, a, a, you know, a, a decent tax loss uh, shuffle. Right. You need losses as an ingredient. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> we don't have a lot of that. So um, unless something happens, unless we get that ingredient in the next few, few right. weeks and months. Right, but you could see profit taking by the same token. You never know. So, what do you think, Mariana? What are your What are your thoughts on twenty twenty one and maybe how that extends into next year? A couple of thoughts that that I have, uh, and that is on the uh, the IPO. Uh, the The structure has evolved over the past few years, and I think it has a, it, it has been a good evolution. And as I said on the uh, panel earlier today, I think the close and fun IPOs were uh, more the hair than the tortoise they have become more the tortoise. And I think that's a very good thing. Uh, the tortoise is my favorite animal <laughs> because of the fable. So I, I think if they just maintain that, um, the number of funds in a year IPOs has been somewhat stable. The size has increased. Um, and I think that has been positive for the secondary market and the secondary market seems to have 
benefited the primary market. So hopefully that continues and uh, we keep the tortoise approach, not the hare approach, not go back to the hare approach. And the other thing is something that uh, Bob, you mentioned, um, and that is these Zoom calls. Uh, we might as well just take advantage of, of a crisis. Why not? Let's learn from a crisis. And if there can be uh, much more connection to financial adv advisors, and I don't know if it's possible also with individual investors, um, let's make sure that, that they understand um, closed-end funds better because as I said earlier today, uh, if on, actually if only a fraction of mutual fund investors were to better understand closed-end funds, we had no we would have no discounts. So I think that that's another um, thing that hopefully will continue. We only have two minutes left. The question just came in about market top. You know, we're seeing big funds. Does that signal a market top? And, and my response would be, I think, I don't think so. I think for the reasons Mariana just stated and that the deals are being done judiciously, not like years ago when oftentimes you had three, four, five deals sometimes coming in a month. Um, I don't think, and um, and again, we only have two minutes left, so I, I don't think that suggests a market top. If anybody disagrees, speak now. But I, again, we're short on time, so but I do completely agree with you. Completely agree with you. Average deal size this year is like 1.4 billion. 2013 had larger overall gross proceeds, net proceeds issuance, but there were you know like how many deals? 23 deals in 2013. This year we've had nine, and we're almost gonna you know we have three more teed up for the rest of the year. So. Yeah. And your takeaway, real, you got one minute and then I'm going to put, hand it over to Alex. Your takeaway, uh, Mike, on 20. Oh, I mean, I don't really have anything else to add. I mean, I think, you know, if you're in a fund, the, I don't, I don't foresee any great tax loss selling because Mariana said an ingredient to that is, you know, you need to have a loss. Um, you, but at the same time, if you're in a closed end fund, and it's trading at a massive premium, you should be selling that. And, you know, it's, it's never a bad time to go to cash or to find, a similar type of fund that, you know, the underlying assets that you uh, sell out of your large premium, take the gain and go into something that has a better valuation. Um, Alex, real quick. Get yeah, I'll here. make it real quick. I would say if there's one thing, you know, I generally think that things are going to chug along and be fine, uh, especially on the taxable fixed income side and credit and other things that seem like they're performing well. Um, if there's one place that I'd be a little bit cautious, um, that would be in your prototypical borrow short, lend long kind of fund where they are having problems replacing bonds as they call and mature. And if you thought that last year and this year, dividend hikes tend to be good for performance and tend to be good for the way that retail investors take closed-end funds, dividend cuts aren't. Uh, so just be very, very careful. Replacing paper these days is difficult and earnings on some funds are gonna suffer because of it. Great, Alex, very helpful. That's all the time we have, folks. Uh, Mariana, Mike, Alex, uh, Alex and Mike Taggart, thanks so much for your, uh, your, your help on this. Great, great panel. Pleasure to host it. Uh, we conclude uh, and we appreciate your uh, attendance, folks. Thanks so thanks, much. Uh, thanks Thank for you. Me. Thank you from my side as well. Uh, thank you. I'd like to uh, also thank uh, Mariana, Alex, and Mike for uh, being part of the advisory committee. And of course, Bob, for being a great partner, putting this whole event together every year. And of course, great to see uh, Mike uh, with us again. Uh, thanks for having me, Nicholas. So thank you very, very much for making today, I mean, today's forum so special. Thank you. Pleasure, Nicholas.